Hello, you're listening to the Mag Culture podcast recorded right here in the Mag Culture shop, Clerkenwell, London. I'm Jeremy Leslie. And I'm Liv Siddall. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the January 2019 podcast. Hello. Hello, Liv. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? Happy New Year, Jeremy. Happy New Well, Happy New Year. I mean, it, we're just squeezing into January, aren't we? It's basically we? February, yeah. It's basically, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll say it's January. So we <laughs> should we go through our New Year's resolutions? Um, nah, I don't really... No, 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 no. No, I think that's maybe uh, we're a bit late and also it's quite boring, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no one needs to know our We're not even going to have a New Year's resolution to have no New Year's resolutions. No. We're, we're moving over that completely. <laughs> so welcome. We've got a few things to talk through. Yeah, we've got a fantastic episode uh, in which we're going to be talking about a couple of things. But we've got a really great interview with Elliot from Fantastic Man about their new publication, which is fantastic. And we're going to be looking at the relevance of lists in magazines, old and new. Lists. We love lists. lists. We do love but lists. But not lists of New Year's resolutions. No, definitely no, not no. those. Any other list is fine. First, we wanted to talk about uh, how the start of 2019 brought us the news of the end of an era with Adam Moss, editor-in-chief of New York Magazine. Indeed, yes. So uh, you, know, you know more about this than I do, I think. But do you want to talk about him stepping yeah. down from his role? Well, he is stepping down. He announced it a couple of weeks back. Uh, he's been there for 14 years. Uh, he's running the magazine. He's done a fantastic job. And he is, I think, without doubt, one of the editors of this era. Yeah. There's actually a really amazing uh, New York Times interview with Adam Moss. And it says, The departure of Mr. Moss, the longest serving editor-in-chief of the title's half-century history, is another signal moment for an industry that has been transformed by the digital revolution. His last day will be in March. And in an interview, he said he had no immediate plans beyond a long-delayed vacation. I've been going full throttle for 40 years. I want to see what my life is like with less ambition, Mr. Moss said, sipping coffee last week in the kitchen of his West Village home. I'm older than the staff. I'm older than the readers. I just want to do something new. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the piece goes on to say that his editorial ethos, curious, sceptical, attuned to the pleasures of consumerism and the anxieties of urban life, excellent, uh, permanently reshaped several of the country's most prominent publications because it wasn't just New York mm-hmm. Magazine that he worked on, was it? He, there was a few other things he did before that. Yeah, no, he he, he he first came to prominence on a magazine called Seven Days, which was kind of a, a listings magazine for the city. Uh, and then the New York Times, he edited the New York Times magazine for right. a period from where he went to New York. And he, he's imposed his kind of view on things on, on all these magazines and has really established a voice and, a, and an importance in the industry. One of his kind of signal achievements is that he managed to make the magazine as relevant and as important as he did for a second time in its history. Because when it first happened in 68, under Clay Felker and Milton Glaser, it very quickly achieved um, a reputation and, and importance in the, in, the, in the city that was really you know, really influential on what a city magazine was for, yeah. for, for years afterwards. You could argue the magazine that had this kind of midlife dip. Mm. After which he, he kind of returned it to its glory days. And it's rare for a magazine to have two such kind of historical points in its life. Yeah, that's great, him sort of coming in and, and giving it that energy again. Do you reckon he kind of took inspiration from Clay and Milton and Absolutely. the way he did that? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think the interesting thing is he he both sort of ransacked the, the, the archive, if you like. He, he and his team clearly did look back to the, the heyday of the 60s and 70s of the magazine, but he also updated that and made it very contemporary. Um, and in that respect, I'm not sure I entirely agree with the New York Times analysis in the sense that 
one of the great successes of his time at the magazine was the digital strategy, was the digital side. But they faced, as all magazines do, enormous challenges in that respect. They, i.e. he, met those challenges head on. What do you mean about his sort of digital... They now have a, a, a huge range of websites which are based on various franchises and sections in their magazine. I mean, it's not... And in one sense, it's not rocket science. They launched uh, The Cut for fashion. They've oh, got the Vulture so for Culture Vulture. Yeah. Grub Street for food. All of which kind of em- grew out of the magazine. And, yeah. and the kind of coverage that the magazine gave of its city in the first place. You know, yeah. obvious things. New York, you, th- you do think. You think food, culture, fashion, these big areas of activity which its listings and which its general coverage always dealt with. I mean, there is a New York magazine website itself but there's all these kind of sub brands within it yeah and they live very much on their own like the cut yes. could, the cut could just be the cut it doesn't Absolutely, need to be, yes, need to be yeah. tied. it's so so independent and it's yeah and it's so they're, they're all so wonderfully done he did a great presentation for us at mod mag in 2014 where 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 he was just that all of this was happening and and he defined it very very uh, intelligently and carefully and, uh, and 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 they've made a real success of it it, it is now a digital and print entity the print magazines dropped to being a fortnightly and a lot of what might have been the kind of smaller, bittier, maybe list-like coverage has gone online and the magazine itself it, it has more space now for the bigger, longer reads and politics. I wonder what the benefits are of going bi-weekly or fortnightly. I wonder what. I wonder why that's a decision. Is it just to kind of make sure that the, the content within it, I don't want to say content for a magazine really, but the stuff within it mm-hmm. is is of a standard that does make it separate from the online presence? I, well, I think, well, for a start, it helps the print bill. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I mean, it's a weekly magazine, and the weekly magazine market's a really tough one to keep going at the moment, and let alone keep at the level of standard, mm. of, of quality of material that they are producing. So I think it, it clarifies the speed and spontaneity of, of the web content very clearly as, as daily and instant, and fortnightly is a bit more of a gap back to a slower regime for the print yeah, that's quite nice. Also, it gives the readers a bit of a break. Sometimes with weeklies, I just, I mean, especially, I mean, I just got an, another New Yorker land on my doorstep and I've got probably about 10. I haven't mm-hmm. even unwrapped yet. It's just, I can't keep up. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> I, could try, I could try harder, of course, but um, no, weeklies, uh, yeah, I can understand from an editorial point of view, like it would just give you more time just to concentrate on on making that thing that you're making really, yeah. really incredible. And, and the quality thing, is, I mean, the quality threshold there is extraordinary and the way they work it yeah. is extraordinary. So there's a there's a video, isn't there, online on the, on the Mad Culture There website. is. Well, uh, after Mod Mag in, in, in 2014, we, we recorded a little video where Adam speaks very clearly about some of the, some of the, the what they're doing on the digital side. So, take, I mean, if you if you have a search on madculture.com, you can f- dig that out. Excellent. I also had the opportunity to meet him before that uh, when I visited him in the office in New York to interview him for my book, The Modern Magazine. Uh, and he was a fascinating subject for that. Um, and it was very, very clear immediately the, the total command of the project that he has. I mean, of course, any editor has that, but he really did have it in, in overview and able to talk about the strategy and the thinking behind it and what he, wa- what he wants for the magazine, but also the raw detail of it. He's on top of everything. I mean, yeah. has a huge team, of course. He has got quite an amazing um, presence. Even when he walked into Modbag, everyone was a bit sort of like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just very clever, isn't he? I, I, I'm fascinated as to what he's going to go on and do next because, I mean, where can you go? He obviously just wants a bit of a break, but I can imagine someone who... So if you've been part of that kind of fast-paced nature of editorial and, and running mm-hmm. magazines, it must be very difficult to step away because it does sort of become a bit addictive. And I know that since... I mean, when I have worked in some places and stopped working there, I, you do kind of get a bit of FOMO of not being like... Mm-hmm. that kind of that rush and that and that kind of um endless 
sort of searching for new material and new stories, new it, well, photographers. It, it and and if you're not part of it, yeah. you're, you seem you feel a bit like, oh, <laughs> can but I but just... <laughs> but, but I think this is the other interesting thing about him as a person and an editor is that he's he's very realistic yeah. in, in that sense, you know. Um, He's, I mean, he is a lovely guy. I mean, that is, everybody says that about him. All, all, all the kind of paeans to his time there all, yeah. all note that he's, he's a really, he's a pleasure to work with. He's a decent guy. He works hard and he expects hard work. But yeah. if you work hard with him, he, it's a pleasure to work with. And well, it's, yeah. It says a lot that there have been so many pieces about his work. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes when magazine editors step down, there isn't nearly as much stuff about them online or interviews or, or theme yeah, pieces yeah. Or, or these kind of lovely big editorial features about his work. So that, that says a lot, doesn't it? Going back to what his success was founded on um, and the success of the magazine was the relationship between design and editorial, which is the thing that always fires up my passion around magazines. And he is the kind of epitome of that, about kind of helping redefine the design-edit relationship. Uh, he wanted great design, but it had to work to the service of the content, which seems really kind of basic in terms yeah. of advice. But he, he really took it to the nth degree. And then the magazine always looked fantastic. Um, it was detailed and it was busy and it reflected its host city. Yeah. And the design in it was used to was used to communicate an idea quickly. That's kind of it. Yeah. Was, it was all, almost kind of in terms of like, like, was like advertising. Like his covers yeah. were kind of like ads because you look at it and instantly you get it. And it's just. It's that kind of thing, rather, yeah. than, rather than using design it's for design's sake. Absolutely, it's ideas, and it reflects the city. You know, if you think about when you visit, the city is a mess. It's kind of designed. I mean, the city's a list in its own right, of course. I yeah. mean, if we're talking about lists, and, and that was a really important part of what the magazine was, but, this, you know, the, New York is a list of streets and avenues going, going upwards and across. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's a mess of a city, and however, however much you kind of design it, and, you know, the, the, everyone talks about the metro system and the great signage and everything, and when you see it, in there, there was a there was a guide to that branding that was that had been done. I think it was Massimo Vinelli did the designs in the first place, and there's a kind of brand guidelines for that design, which looks impeccable and perfect. But when you see it in place, it, on the trains and on the, on the, on the <laughs> stations, <laughs> yeah. it's all slightly out. It's all slightly wrong, and that's New York. It is imperfect, and yeah. that I think is what they. What, what Adam and people like Luke Heyman, who was his creative director, who when they relaunched the magazine in 2004, when you see what they did, it's kind of it has that. It's very, it has ambition to be kind of slick and perfect, but it doesn't quite get perfect. But it gets real. It gets it's very direct and it is yeah. in your face. And it's got that kind of snarky, snarky kind of sharp tone of of sort of, of city dwellers. It's mm -hmm. got a kind of it's got an attitude behind it yeah, yeah. of a kind of an attitude of someone who just lives in a busy city and understands the frustrations that go with it. There was one cover that we wanted to talk about um, mm -hmm. to kind of like lead us on to lists as well. One of the covers that the magazine put out was the, well, it's probably one of the most famous magazine covers of all time now. Have you got it with you? Uh, I have. It's somewhere here. Yeah, it's the Bill Cosby cover. Um, I'll let you explain it. Don't know it. Why, if you don't know it, why don't you? Look it up. So this is a cover in, in, uh, in, in July, August 2015. Um, it features 36 black and white portraits of women sat on a chair. It, it is a list. It's a visual taxonomy of women. And what these women all share is um, that they, they are all those that came forward with allegations against the uh, comedian Bill Cosby. Uh, and it was a story that was put together by, uh, I mean, I met, we, we've talked about Adam, I've mentioned Luke Heyman. We can't forget Judy Kwan, who was the photo director there. Well, still is the photo director there. Uh, and she put this story together and she compiled it. She traced these the, the women. She got them to come forward. She photographed them in, in, in this situation. And I think the fact that they're shot in black and white, 
they're all sitting it makes them all the same in a, in a sense it, it, it kind of emphasizes the similarity that these are a group of people and then of course at the bottom there is an empty chair which leaves space for all, all the other unknown victims who um, might might yet and indeed have been coming yeah. forward it really is it's fascinating to think about that cover because it was it, it you know it caused such a stir at the time but also if you think about working in that way i just imagine like if if she had an idea to get all the women together to be on this cover your first thought would be to kind of put them all in one picture, wouldn't it? Or like get them in a line or get them in a crowd. Well, well there the is, idea that yeah. she's kind of put them all on chairs and photographed them separately at mm -hmm. separate occasions and put them all together. It has so much more impact than seeing them all in a room. But because you still get the idea that there are so many women on there on yeah. that front cover. There's 36. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. it gets across the amount. But also the way they're sitting on a chair looking at you, it's as if they're about to tell you something. Yeah. And there's something really powerful about that. Well, it's a very specific direction to take you know one thinks of things like the Vanity Fair Oscar cover where you have all these um, women and men posing in in evening wear yeah. in, en masse and those kind of group <laughs> shots and, and, and I mean I'm not suggesting for a moment anyone would think that would be the right way to take yeah. this but that's completely you know that's more of a traditional magazine route for how you put groups of people on the cover. And it wouldn't but have been nearly as memorable because if you see, if you if you caught a glimpse of that issue, you'd mm. know exactly what issue that was and exactly what the story was yeah. because you remember it. But if it was just a group of women standing together, mm -hmm. it just it, it might not have yeah. become so yeah. memorable. I think I think this this makes it clear that these women come from different parts of life, different parts of the country. That they, 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 this is the first time they've been put together, and they probably don't even know each other or have met each other. But there are a whole host of individuals who have suffered yeah. from this man. Uh, and you can only imagine how long it took to, to get portraits of all yeah. of them. But she pulled it all together and persuaded the team to take it on. And I think that's something, again, for all his his power and his kind of reach in terms of being the editor-in-chief and being in charge and, and absolutely taking the final decision and taking any any blame for any problem that might arise, uh, he's he also li always lis listens to his team. And one of the things that struck me when it... Uh, I interviewed him was he talked about how they make the covers and and they always will come up with several ideas and then he'll he'll get in people from all around the office in to discuss which yeah, one so is going to work and which one isn't uh, and and I got a real sense that that's not a that's not a kind of playful sort of silly little sideline towards his main decision that was the decision making process yeah no that's fascinating the other thing a design detail on the front cover here which um, something somebody pointed out to me and I think is really uh, an intriguing additional point to the to, to the pictures themselves is that the headline uh, just simply says Cosby colon the women. Now, traditionally, in that kind of typographic makeup, the word Cosby would be in bold and heavy because that's the the star of the of, of of the piece. It'd be Bill Cosby in big lights, and then the secondary part would be the women. But in this case, they've inverted that, so Cosby's in a really light typeface because he's not the oh important yeah. party here. The women is the word that's in bold. Uh, so I think it's, it's that kind of little detailing. Yeah, for sure. And understanding the subtleties of meaning. That, and that's, that's really archetypal New York magazine understanding of design and editorial in three words. Yeah, One and, little bit and of does sort of hark back to Clay and, and, and Milton yeah, back in the day. Absolutely. That's the kind of thing they yeah. would have done or they would have like taken time to think about. Yes. yes. Very inspiring. Also, uh, before we stop talking about this, but which we probably should quite soon, yeah. we need to talk about the... Um, the, the list of lists. The list of lists. <laughs> Well, the approval matrix. Absolutely, the approval matrix. This is another example of, of I think, of how um, Adam Moss and the way he works. So uh, the approval matrix is is a graphic idea, which we'll explain more in, in, in a little bit, a little moment. But it came about during the relaunch in 2004 when TV writer uh, Emily Nelsbaum brought in an idea, a similar diagram from, from Wired magazine, 
I remember, um, I think it was Luke Heyman explained to me, looking at this idea as, as, as a prospect for the new magazine, the new relaunch, half the office, those below 40 years old, loved it. And half of them who were above 40, as it happened, didn't really get it. And that, <laughs> and that included Adam, who, who sort of looked at this thing and didn't really get it. As Luke explained, to Adam's credit, he went for it and it has subsequently become a huge thing. It's so great. It's and perfect. It is. It's a perfect magazine feature. Yes, it is. It it's, is. A, it's the kind of thing that you look forward to getting to that page when you get the magazine. You kind of you, you flick forward just to get to that, and then you might even toss the whole thing afterwards. Be like, yeah, I'm done now. Yeah. Can you describe? Um, can you describe the approval Absolutely. matrix to anyone that doesn't know what it is? Yeah. Well, it's, it's it, quite it, difficult it, to explain without it's, seeing it, it. it. Well, post an example on the website anyway, but yeah. it is a simple diagram based on the kind of SWOT analysis where you have two axes. Uh, going down and across, uh, and they cross each other. And then from um, top to bottom, you've got highbrow mm -hmm. and lowbrow. So it's kind of, you know, it, it mixes really important culture and what is deemed to be kind of lowbrow culture on, on that axis. And then going across, uh, you have on the, on the right-hand side, you have brilliant, which is self-evident. And then on the left-hand side, you have despicable, <laughs> which is just the most perfect word. It's, it's so it's, good. It, I love despicable to brilliant. <laughs> it just allows you so much space to be decisive about where you place things on this graph. Yeah. So then you've got a whole, whole big square with four quadrants into which you can place any piece of news or cultural event or politics or, or, or random thoughts or people yeah. of that uh, fortnight. Yeah. And it is brilliant. You have to know a lot about New York City and what's happening in New York to really follow the, the minutiae of it. Yeah. But luckily for us, <laughs> there's a book, there's the book of New York magazine called 50 Years of New York, which came out last year. And as part of the wraparound cover on that, they did the approval matrix to end all approval matrices, which features the kind of 50 years of New York City. And that is much more e more easily decipherable for the non-New Yorker. But there's, yeah, but there's still a lot in there that I've got no idea what it means. Let's get the poster out. So to give an Russell, example. Russell. So, it, it, so this is a very large version of it. But um, give a very easy, uh, famous, mo probably the most important thing that's happened in, the, in New York City of the last 50 years. So in the bottom left, in the most despicable and most lowbrow corner is 9-11. Is Yes, Easy. where it should be. In the highbrow and despicable corner, we have the fact that Donald Trump, of all people, has become <laughs> has become president. <laughs> Donald Trump has been a, a figure of, mo of, of of mirth in New York City for the last fifty years. Uh, but what have we got? Just to kind of, it's quite difficult to give an example. But I suppose uh, in the bottom corner of brilliant and lowbrow, we've got the pooper scooper law from nineteen seventy eight. And then if you go into the kind of like the middle it's where of it the gets graph, interesting. yeah, because yeah. that that's things that don't really fit anywhere, but they still make complete sense where they are. So bang in the middle of brilliant and lowbrow is the Roosevelt Island tram, uh, <laughs> and also there's Blondie, uh -huh. and and then also if you go into highbrow and brilliant, you'll see Malcolm Gladwell sort of in the yes. middle there. And then creeping up towards highbrow and brilliant, towards the top corner, you've got Joan Didion. She fits there. The word wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. I could look at this forever. I kind of want to buy John Lennon's assassination. This, uh, so anyway, but the, but the point is this. I mean, it is the list to end all lists. It's a fantastic editorial device, but it allows you to be serious and funny and everything. And, th and for me, the, the approval matrix has become New York magazine. When you're making a magazine, one uses lists to compile and, and contrast and figure out what you're doing this device this diagram is the map of new york magazine yeah i think it's um i think it's interesting that you say that that's i i, I do feel like list list features or features that can be quickly consumed like that sharp funny mm -hmm. fast features 
they are definitely they definitely have a place in weeklies, but in in the kind of independent magazines that you and I often talk about, these ones you know that come out you know mm-hmm. biannually or whatever, they 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 don't tend to have as many of these features as they once did. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe people are kind of moving away from this kind of feature, but I really don't think they should because it, it's so important to flick through a magazine and have the odd page that you can consume in sort of ten mm-hmm. seconds and enjoy and you know maybe show it to a friend or something and then come back to it later or just or just kind of move past it. But it's a very good way of just getting news across very quickly or something very funny. I agree. I think they're entertaining, but they're also very efficient. Yeah. Um, and I think the efficiency thing has, be, has perhaps labelled them a, a sort of poor relation to the long-form content that's, uh, that is also just as valid. But yeah. I think you need both. Uh, the The internet has kind of ruined lists for in some respect with BuzzFeed and their easy kind of clickbait lists. And that, that's kind of given lists a dirty name. And uh, But actually, if, if you create intelligent useful positive list i think it's a really absolute valid part of any magazine definitely i think so um i've actually got um when we were talking you, about you've lists, got some so great examples yeah. well i've <laughs> been i've been keeping this this example in my um in a folder on my desktop uh, for a while now and it's from a copy of enemy in 1987 and i found it uh, last year when uh, about almost exactly this time last year when marky smith sadly passed away and someone put it out on twitter it's basically a feature of 1987 in enemy and it's called mark e smith's ins and outs and in, in the middle of an interview with, with Marky e. Smith, they asked him to compile a list of what he thinks in and what he thinks out. Um, and it's just, I mean, I'm sure the interview around it is great, but you really don't need much more information <laughs> about Marky e. Smith <laughs> than what he kind of um, tells us on this list. So in, you've got sliced white bread with additives. Uh, out, you've got brown, brown bread with bits in it. Uh, in, you've got Glasgow, Mexicans, homebrew, uh, the Paras, South London, um gene vincent's backing vocalists um embassy filter embassy mild and then in outs you've got all fruit juice (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all welsh groups the cures one record scotch pop groups all sunday papers white training shoes cars rock on television dr martin boots uh and loads of other stuff so basically it's just kind of i mean that must have marky smith's probably the perfect person to have been asked to do that i mean not many um people would actually put together such Mm -hmm. a funny list but it's it's just great how how much that kind of gets across, and I feel like that's the kind of feature that you might not find these days. But you know, what better way just to kind of communicate what someone's about than get them to write what they hate and what they like? I think th- I think the other thing with the lists is, is is, and then that's the prime example is it teases out things that people might not otherwise share. Yeah, you know, it's it's very you know you can sit down and say so. Mark, tell us about your new record, Yawn, Yawn, Yawn. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas getting to start talking like that and it becomes far more interesting and if he, 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 the passions and, the, and his abs- kind of slightly absurd, surreal <laughs> outlook comes yeah. th- through much more clearly than the rude reaction you'll get to that question. I know, exactly. And there are a few um, other things I was... I mean, the first things mm-hmm. that came to my head were obviously Viz, uh, the Profanosaurus, yeah, yeah. which is their, one of their oldest regular features, which, if you don't know, is an incredibly rude sort of thesaurus in which they create a list of words and their many definitions. Made up words. Made... Uh, sort of. It's more like combinations of words. So I've, I've tried to pick an example that isn't... <laughs> uh, definitely not one of the rudest ones they've put out because some of them are filthy. Um, but one is... So Beer Monkey... They've said the definition of that is a mythical simian creature which, during a drunken slumber, sneaks into your bed, ruffles your hair, steals your money, and shits in your mouth. Um, so that's kind of what they do. Mm-hmm. And they have they have just hundreds of these per issue, and they've been doing it for years. And that's a really good feature. And that when I talk to someone about Viz, they often talk about the Phanosaurus because mm-hmm. they, they flicked that first because you don't have to get stuck into it. You can just scan it. You might read it when you're you know on the toilet or something. It's just a kind of a feature that you can dip into, laugh at, and then yeah. put aside for the next time. And I also think that 
growing up, I used to always skip forward to um, when I did used to buy some of the less savoury magazines from, or more savoury magazines from W.H. Smith, like Heat magazine. Mm -hmm. They had a feature called Spotted, which is where people would send in where they've spotted a celebrity. And it was just a list of where celebrities have been spotted. And it was just fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, now I'm a bit, bit older and a bit more cynical. I'm thinking maybe... I'm just guessing the staff might have made some of them up. I don't know. <laughs> but um, there were these awards. No, no, no. They, no, 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 no. But there were these awards, like Crap Spot of the Week, yeah. where it was some, you know, it was like, um, I don't know, the guy but from Simply Red scene in a Greg's or but something. But there's a and fine then, line, isn't there? Because I remember that period with, of, of Heat, and, and it could be very, very funny. It was it, very it, funny. It was mocking, but it was, it was amusingly so. Now we have the Daily Mail's sidebar of shame on, the yeah, web on, on their website, and it's just <laughs> miserable. <laughs> yeah, actually, in the Heat Spotted feature, they ran it with the um, with the subheading or tagline they can run and they can hide but they haven't <laughs> and it's basically <laughs> yeah, yeah. pointing out the celebrities like to be spotted yeah which is very good um but i suppose we were kind of talking about it was nice to talk to you about lists because those two sort of quite silly um list examples came to me straight away but actually you pointed out when we were having a chat about it that all magazines are lists i mean magazines were kind of invented to give people information mm -hmm. often off a lot of the time via lists so with, with classifieds or lists of jobs or lists of you know local businesses that kind of stuff i mean magazines i suppose originally are just about giving you a huge option of things well, in they, one go yeah well they, i mean think about the contents page yeah that is you know that's how that's how we put together a magazine we put yeah. we, we list out ideas and, and it comes together and and, and you, you try and make the perfect list of content that ticks this and that and all the various things you want in your magazine yeah or walking into um, an editorial meeting with a list of things to bring and then yeah. you've got a list of photographers who could do it, or a list of writers who could yeah, do it, or yeah. a list of topics or a list of magazines are sort of made of lists and they're made with lists yeah both for the producer and the reader, that's the vital kind of currency of, of what a magazine is, I think. Yeah. And and, and you mentioning um, sort of perhaps the independent scene at the moment sort of ignores lists. I think that is often the case. I think there's there's one publisher for whom the list is is king. I think that's the the team at Fantastic Man and Gentlewoman. If you look at the Gentlewoman, that is very carefully compiled, and a lot of it is a list of interesting women. Yeah. And the kind of way that they. They use footnotes and other and, and other parts of the process to to, to to add information, and they list recommended things, etc. Because that's what you want from a magazine. You want to go there and and, and take away something, mm -hmm. like something useful. And I think a lot of and that's kind of I suppose you get that a lot more in, in sort of supplement magazines. You know, it's it's lists of stuff to buy, lists of places mm -hmm. to go, lists of places you can get houses that are affordable in. Blah blah yeah, blah. Yeah, you do go to magazines for that, and I think the gentleman, you're right, does that because it just gives you that information that you want, mm -hmm. but in a kind of it's not a list as we know list it's more abstract than that well underlying it all the structure the structure is very listed and and uh, you know it, i think it's just very it's very literal that structure in their magazine all magazines as you say are lists but yeah yeah i've got one more example which is um, Let's have it. uh Stuart brand's whole oh, earth well, catalog yeah. which is like i mean the ultimate the list Bible. magazine yeah, yeah it's essentially like if you don't know what it is it was launched in 1968 and it was a, it's a big publication that served as a directory for people who had fled from American cities to go and live in more rural areas. And it was basically they could just look at this list of things you can buy and order them um, via mail order and get their geodesic domes mm -hmm. or their home birthing kits sent out to them wherever they lived. And that is just one of the most beautiful examples of, of, a, of an enormous publication, which is just a massive list. Absolutely. And also a key publication for so many of today's publishers. Totally. So many people refer back to that project as, yeah. a, as a kind of a totem. And actually... Uh, your favourite magazine of all time is List well, Magazine. Well, List Magazine. That, that was a magazine of lists. <laughs> Can you tell us about S it? Sad, sadly, the list of its of its 
um, editions goes as far as one. There was, <laughs> there was one edition of this magazine. But we mentioned this before, I think, on we the did, podcast. We did go sort of slightly um, into it. I think in episode one at the end, we talked about yeah. it a little bit. But just to, just in a nutshell, mm-hmm. what was this This uh, so it, well, it was So it was a list of lists, visual taxonomies, things like um, a series of photographs in chronological order of all the early games consoles, uh, a list of the FBI's most wanted men at that time. Excellent. And including somebody that no one had heard of then, uh, effectively, just uh, just another supposed criminal called Osama bin Laden. He oh was God. on the list. Um, <laughs> and then lists of, of the invite uh, invitation list to uh, t- the launch of Talk magazine, which is one of the most talked about launches of that era. It's wow. We're talking about the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and just you know, a, a huge party list and sort of everybody who was everybody in, in, in the annals of kind of celebrity culture in New York was invited to this oh, I'd party. I'd love to read that. Um, supermodels, day rates. I mean, Ooh, just... Uh, very good. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah, it's a fantastic kind of source of lists. A pleasure to read. Good. And also, just quickly on the end of that, there's also Fan Pages magazine. Yes, of which course. Which is um, a more... It, it's a similar idea, but it's it's still going now, isn't it? It comes out every now and again. Uh, well, there's been two issues. I'm not, we haven't had one for a while, but that, no. yeah, so, so that invites contributions for people to express their undying worship for their for the things that they the, that they love yeah they just they just find amazing contributors and they just say what what do you love most and then write us a list of mm-hmm. of uh, a bit like you're a teenager you make a yeah. sort of like a fan page of yeah. a sort of a collage of all your favorite things mm-hmm. about them i think alexa chung did george harrison's denim wear very good <laughs> love that he has got a fantastic collection so anyway uh kind of speaking about lists we're going to move on to our next section which yes. is an interview well, with elliot so i'll well, let you introduce that. absolutely well uh, today's guest is uh, elliot howarth from uh, who's the deputy editor of fantastic man and he has just been responsible for a collection of that magazine's online questionnaires and the resulting little publication is uh, of course a gorgeous thing all, all work from that the, those publishers looks the business what men wear is is an elegant slimline little publication which repurposes 50 questionnaires asking that question of 50 men um, they've been, it's been online for a while and now it's it's in print i spoke to him about how the project came about and what we can divine from it about what men wear <laughs> Welcome, Elliot. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, fascinating to hear a bit more about what men wear. Just give us the basic premise. So the premise that is most basic is it's a series of Q&A interviews with men of varying professions, levels of notability, notoriety about why they wear what they wear. Um, each one takes a different garment as a starting point and goes from there basically mm-hmm. yeah that's it that's it it's uh, the most basic yeah yeah and there are 50 there are 50 and they come from um well they come from a an online series that we started about three years ago mm-hmm. called the questionnaire and it was done as a i think we decided that we wanted to do something online we're not really that big online but we wanted a format that we could put on our, on our website that allowed us to do something a bit more regularly and we kind of settled upon talking to men about their clothes and we realized over the summer that we had done over 50 and we kind of without really realizing it and decided that we wanted to make something of it and that became this little book mm-hmm. uh, and it's been published with browns yes so i mean that's I, i'm interested i mean you, you have quite a few commercial relationships you, you do magazines with cos mm-hmm. and penguin and this is another similar kind of arrangement yeah, so we basically, when we decided 
kind of, I think we were having lunch and decided that we were going to make a book out of this thing and pitched the idea to Browns or mentioned it to them. And they were immediately really excited and decided that they wanted to kind of help support the, the project. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's a kind of partnership collaboration type thing. And they've been really good with just helping it all happen in a really, for us, what is a really quick turnaround. You know, we make biannual magazines. We like to ponder and take our time on things. This happened from about, I don't know, a lunch in early October. We finished it before Christmas. Um, it was a, it helped that we had a lot of the material already, but you know, we can talk, we can talk the nitty gritty of it if you want, but it uh -huh. was, you know, there, there is a lot that goes into making a book, even if it's creating an anthology of pre-existing sure. material. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Although we do have three extra interviews with yeah, uh, three designers. Meant, yeah, so, so, and, and that's, that's new content. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, uh, well, we'll leave people to find that as a little surprise in, okay. in, in the middle of it. All. Okay. But, um, one of the things that struck me is that there are no, there's no imagery, which mm -hmm. is a fascinating thing from the point of view of somebody that knows Fantastic Man, where it's very image orientated, I mean, picture yeah. orientated. Uh, but there, there was never any imagery with these questionnaires online. No, uh, that we, yeah, we did think about that for a while when we, when we first launched the series. Uh, would we show the clothes? What kind of imagery do we use? Do we show the person? And we very quickly decided that showing the garment in question somehow ruined the magic of it a bit. It kind of removed something of it immediately. This idea, someone could be describing this thing that they're incredibly obsessed by and you get a picture of it and it's a bit wrinkled or on a hanger. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. kind of when you look at clothes on eBay and they look a bit shit. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're it, no, but, it might, it but, might but turn out like that. that. But it's, it's, it is interesting reading people describing yeah. that, that, even if it's just the black T-shirt. or. But I mean, some people talk about a very specific style of trousers, like mm. the, um, Paul Gorman's baker's trousers. Exactly. And you sort of, you know, I mean, I'm going to go off and Google it. I mean, yeah, no, that, that's um, what I really like. It, yeah. leaves, it leaves the mind to, to do a bit of the, the legwork mm -hmm. and kind of picture what this amazing item of clothing might look like and... I think, yeah, definitely some of the, the magic of it comes from the fact that we leave something out. We don't give you everything. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I don't know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, though, because although Fantastic Man is very image orientated, it's also very text orientated, uh, especially for a fashion magazine. And also very, it's got very, very strong visual uh, design kind mm -hmm. of language. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of taking two of those elements. So I, I'd say typographically, it's it's very Fantastic Man and and text words it's a very fantastic man yeah no i'm interested in, in in that i'd like to take a bit of a closer look at that because one of the things uh, uh we've just been talking about lists um, mm. leading up into this, to this interview and it always strikes me that fantastic man and all the magazines that come from the company the gentlewoman and the other ones i've already mentioned are often quite list orientated mm. in the way that they come together they, they, it feels like um, there's lists and there's there's the recommended section. There's often lots of little kind of franchises that are, you know, listed or they have um, lots of um, footnotes and mm. additional information. And yeah, we love kind of details mm -hmm. and snippets and kind of I don't know what you call it almanacy things yeah, or yeah. Mis miscellaneous miscellaneous bits of miscellaneous Mis information. Is the word, isn't yeah. It? yeah, yeah. yeah. We we do really like things and taxonomies. Like that. Is, I mean, yeah, uh, and that I mean, it comes back to what you're saying about about what men wear. I mean, actually, if if if, you, if it was just a series of fifty pictures, it would be over in a in a flick. But actually, mm. reading it, you learn a lot more about the people and and their the wider world of, of clothes and fashion. 
Yeah, I mean, it's what's been really enjoyable about this is that I think we just we had a we 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 are as a magazine very interested in clothes and the reasons behind kind of clothing decisions and style decisions and stories behind clothing. So we kind of knew already that it would be a topic that would interest us, but it's been really nice to see how a topic that is, you know, incredibly specific, often a little bit banal, like someone's trousers or someone's hat or a t-shirt actually immediately opens up into this mm -hmm. much wider area of discussion, whether it's childhood memory or sexuality or what you feel sexy in or how you'd like to present yourself to the world. It's, I think, because clothes are this very personal object, you know, it's one of the most personal things in terms of things that we own because we furnish ourselves with them. They're so close to the body. They represent us in a way, whereas how we want to be represented. Yeah, identity. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's only natural that suddenly someone starts talking about a pair of socks and, and like, bam, they're on to opening up about some yeah. some weird thing that they've never really spoken to uh -huh. anyone about. And that's actually one of the best things about doing these interviews is that they allow people to just relax and open up sometimes, mm -hmm. especially talking to people who are maybe promoting a book or an album or a film or an exhibition. They've spent months yeah. talking about this thing over and over and over again until they're bored and suddenly someone sits down in front of them and wants to talk about yeah. one really specific item of clothing. I think they find it quite cathartic and interesting and come out saying it feels like they've been in a therapy session which i should charge them for maybe. <laughs> and, is it, and what is there a, a particular criteria that you apply to mm. how you select the men involved? no i mean it's, it's broad on purpose um especially as, as it's not really a book about fashion it's a book about clothes mm -hmm. uh fashion pops up a lot because you know clothes are fashion but but it's it's about clothing so we wanted to pick people who are maybe more well known, or we wanted to pick people who are just friends and family or strangers or someone who someone's just said, oh, you know, this person I know, maybe they'd be good for it. And we just kind of do it in a very ad hoc way, have a little think about whether they fit a certain type of garment. There are some people who we chose specifically because we had a certain thing in mind for them. Okay. Um, and, like and Fernando Monocle is yeah. a good one because okay. he's Mr. Short Shorts. Yes, so we, okay. we're like, it's going to be Short Shorts with you, Grayson Perry and uh -huh. his dresses. Other people, we we just set something up. Mm -hmm. Don't ask them too much. And then it, take it from there as soon as the interview starts. So it's... And I mean, there, there are 50, which is a very nice round number. So presumably you had to go through more than 50 and yeah. drop a few. Yeah. So um, the book's kind of been edited by uh, Gert Yonkers and myself, and then designed by Jop van Bernekom, creative the director, team. Yeah, and, yeah. and Elios Captavia. So it's two, kind of two editors, two designers. And in terms of the text, Gert and I basically reread everything and got a red pen out, and then also sat down one afternoon and just debated mm -hmm. the pros and cons of each one and settled on a, a top 50. But it was good, you know, we, we went through everything and, and re-edited it re-edited it specifically for the book, trimmed it, made everything kind of tighten up a bit because we're not the kind of magazine that would be happy with just taking something and plonking it in a book without really reassessing it. Yeah, yeah. It's, It was very important for us to question everything again. It's that idea of details, you know, mm -hmm. very uh, obsessive. Precise. And precise, yeah. yeah. And it's an obsessive book. We were, mm -hmm. I've just come from, from Paris. Uh, we had a dinner during Men's Fashion Week there for the book launch. 
which was really great. We had uh, some of the people who have been in the magazine, uh, in the book rather, there. Um, but we finally got a chance to step back and look at the printed objects and assess it. And we realized that it's incredibly obsessive, uh, you know, because yeah, yeah. these have been going for three years and they come out maybe twice a month or something. And we do them quite in quite a relaxed manner. And so maybe we don't get a sense of seeing them all en masse so much. And mm -hmm. suddenly you look at them in a book and it's just kind of yeah. it, it keeps going and yeah, going and yeah. going and going and going. It's a bit mad, but in a way that I really appreciate and i hope yeah having them but, on it's, mass. It, but it is fast i mean it, it, each one starts from the same premise and yeah. heads off in completely different directions yes um it's maybe a, a tough question to put you on the spot but is there is there a favorite not clo piece of clothing but a favorite story attached to the clothing um yeah there are there are a few you don't like to pick favorites but um it's inevitable some will be better than others um <laughs> I personally really enjoyed one that I did with my friend Abdo, who works as a charity officer mm -hmm. for a healthcare charity. And he spoke about this really boring suit he owns that he, he deals a lot with politicians and he's created this tactic of helping to get them to do what he wants by wearing this suit that is incredibly boring, that kind of doesn't distract them too much and he comes from a background where he used to assist politicians as well and he learned very quickly that when you're in parliament you have to completely disappear if you're more of a kind of uh, junior person so it's all about I don't know I find that really fascinating it's about political dress codes that are these unwritten rules you know labor politicians don't wear double-breasted suits or cufflinks whereas Tory politicians do uh, front bench MPs dress in a certain way whereas back bench MPs dress in a slightly different way the merits of you know, having to dress for a constituency versus uh, being a prime minister and having to dress for millions of people. Anyway, that that was a really fascinating one for mm -hmm, me. Mm -hmm. And then also just getting to interview people like Grayson Perry. Do you think people who do them now sort of do their research and log on and, Maybe. and, and check out what other people have done? Maybe. It depends. Some people, some people just turn up and do it. Other people say they have had a look at some of the old mm -hmm. ones and they come in and have a printout of the questions with it. Because we have a very formal question sheet that we email people with a fantastic man letterhead and address on it. And it's all typed up. And um, they sometimes turn up with a, all their answers kind of written in on, or notes on the, on the question and answer sheet. Um, I reckon maybe there is some competition. Mm -hmm. I hope not too much. Yeah, I wouldn't want it to influence what people say. But one of the challenges is, you know, there's only a finite number of types of clothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I did, uh, you know, a very quick survey would imply that I don't think anything repeats. But not it, too much. It we find a variation within that. Mm -hmm. There are a few different types of T-shirt, for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. However, I think as long as we can justify it with a twist that reflects what was said in the interview, mm -hmm. that's okay. Whether it's the black T-shirt or the white T-shirt or the long sleeve T-shirt or, or the, the V-neck, yeah, yeah, or it might end up becoming the stained T-shirts or the ripped T-shirts or whatever. There's always, I think, room for maneuver because even if you have twenty people talking about T-shirts, I think they'll all be different. And that I think that's the point, and, and uh, I, I think that's a, a nice point at which to bring in the sub, uh, almost the subtitle of the book. It's it's what men wear and why. Yes, which and it's the why that's the fascinating part, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um. That why could be anything from because it makes my bum look good or it could be just because it's the thing they find easiest to wear in the morning or it could be that it's a particular type of clothing from their favorite designer. Um, yeah, the reasons vary from 
the profound to the mundane. And I think that's where the beauty of the book lies, if I'm allowed to big it up that much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us, Elliot. Uh, now, one of, one of the questionnaires, which we didn't mention in the, in the chat there, um, were, came from Stephen Gregor, mm. our friend, an, another uh, magazine fanatic, uh, and he's the man behind Gym Class magazine. Um, and he chose a black T-shirt, by the way, which um, I guess counts me out in the future because <laughs> that's what I would choose. So that, that must be why they've never asked me. He's just published a new issue of Gym Class. Um, it's the first for two years. It still celebrates the magazines that we all love, but in, it's in a slightly different way. This one, instead of being all new content, he's drawn together interviews with magazine editors that have been already published in other magazines. So hang on a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. Okay, but it's so not. It's, it's interviews with magazine editors about magazines that have taken from other magazines. It's about the people that make <laughs> magazines. That, so, for instance, we have an interview with the New Yorker editor David Remnick, which was done by Christoph Amen from Zeit Magazine Aww. and appeared in Zeit Magazine. So that's. that's nice. uh, but it's it, it's less about the magazines. It's more about the people that make the magazines. So it's, yeah. it's interviews with these people. It would have been lovely to see the full-length interview with, with Adam Moss. But uh, but there's there's a bunch of interviews like that in the issue. So anyway, it's lovely to have Jim Class back. It's, it's, it, it's still loving magazines, but in, just in a slightly different way. So I recommend that. Fantastic. We'll be back in a minute after this very small ad read to tell you about Jeremy's back issue. London printers, Park Communications, are a key part of the independent publishing scene, taking indie mags from desktop promise to printed reality. Over the last year, they've produced over 90 different magazines with a huge variety of print ones and finishes. Park offer a wide range of services to make your magazine stand out in a shop like mag culture. Check out the launch issue of Middle Plane to see how Park can add extra features to your magazine. In this case, a screen printed wraparound plastic sleeve that adds a unique finish to the publication. Just like mag culture, Park love magazines and we're proud to have them sponsor this podcast. Hello and welcome back <laughs> to Jeremy's back issue in which Jeremy takes a fantastic magazine off of his very heavy shelves laden with old magazines and he tells us all about it. And this week we have uncovered another beauty, which is... I have dusted down a copy of Marmalade. Which so what is Marmalade? It's a magazine. <laughs> yes. uh, it was published uh, in London, here we are, in London, between 2001 and 2006. And to place that more exactly in your mental memories... Uh, they did a special issue, which was a unique collaboration with MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> which very, kind of, very of its time. Whoa, when was that? <laughs> um, it featured a host of young talent spotting people for the first time, musicians, photographers, illustrators, all sorts of people. It was very of its time in that sense. And, and a lot of the writers, um, people like Zoe Williams, Francesca Gavin, uh, Henrietta Thompson, I'm, I'm not sure they first appeared in the magazine, but they certainly that's when they began to develop their voice uh, in the creative world. Can I just, off the back of that, um, yeah. for anyone listening, um, <laughs> just read out, the, I'm, I'm holding one now, Marmalade magazine, for good-looking smart people. In this issue is Natalie Prass, Pigeon Detectives, Pi <laughs> Pixie Geldof, and Patrick Wolfe. <laughs> there you go. What a list. And then on the bottom, the kind of like the subheading says, thanks for the ad, which is obviously yes. a play on the, the MySpace thing. Yes. If but anybody can actually remember MySpace, that's what you used to do. Isn't some it? of the pictures in here are very, very mid noughties There's lots of very dodgy fashion going on. And yeah. I did just pass an interview with Gary, the drummer of the Libertines, which I'll be consuming straight after this. 
Glad to see you're enjoying it. But <laughs> but in a sense, historically kind of interesting it is for its period, perhaps the most exciting thing, and the reason I wanted to mention this today, is the way that it's put together. Instead of designing the pages on a computer screen, every spread was created as a live tableau. So everything was actually kind of stitched together. So, for instance, the, the an interview with, with uh, the Libertines drummer was typeset on a screen, printed out on paper, and then pinned to a pin board or sewn to a cushion or added to another element so the, the, yeah. the pages were made in real life and then photographed and the f- what you're actually looking in the magazine is a series of photographs of stuff that was made it looks great for that reason I mean, it doesn't it's not com- it's not totally obvious from the minute you pick it up that it's all collaged mm-hmm. but um it just kind of it does add something that i can't really get my head around but i mean it's such, it a, it's such a kind of like <laughs> round the houses way of making something but it's a i ridiculous appreciate that when you're actually involved in laying out pages it's very technical and everything now with the computers everything is very straight and perfectly spaced and something in uh, sort of mechanical about it and the, the be, you know the best designers help you overcome that and and, and bring it to life but that was sort of taking that idea to the extreme where it became everything becomes an object yeah totally um you, uh, of course you could photoshop it you could you could mock it you could mock it up, you could fake it, but this is real, and it was—it's um, almost a critique of of the software that we have that we have to use for our magazines, and I love it for that. To be honest, I'm so bad at Photoshop and InDesign that if I was to make another magazine, I'd probably have to do it that way. <laughs> make a collage <laughs> and photograph it—it's quite well, a good. Yeah, it's a good idea. They actually produce quite a lot of issues, and, I've, and I, before this, I did try to track down the the, the two um, people behind the magazine um, to get some sort of sense of of, of what, how they feel about l- looking back at it now, but I, I haven't been able to track them down. But two people, um, Kirsty Robinson. Mm-hmm. And Sasha Spencer Trace. Uh, if anyone knows them or if they're listening, please come forward. What, what, one thing I do know is that Kirsty's written a novel and Sasha's made a movie. Wow. Okay. Uh, but I haven't been able to uh, uh, find out more than that. So if, uh, if you're out there, come and say hi. That would be nice. I think that's all we've got time for today. A bit of a long one, that. I but think it is. There's what, one thing I wanted to mention. Yeah. The face is coming back. Is it? The face is coming back. Finally. I can't tell you. I can't mention it at all, at all. But I know spring, there were rumours. Spring, but... spring, there is a team somewhere secretly working on a new version of the face that is very exciting yeah. i'm sure we'll have more to update you on that in the absolutely, next episode absolutely all um, right so till february which is what i don't know days away <laughs> see you then <laughs> see you bye hi there before we go i'd just like to add a quick correction and apology in this segment where we talk about new york magazine i mispronounced jody kwan's name so apologies to jody it won't happen again <laughs> You've been listening to the Mag Culture Podcast. Please show your support and subscribe to our show on iTunes.